Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sober Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. I'm your host, Monte Ball, with our co-host as well, Jessica Geschke. Jessica, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Monte. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm excited for today's episode. We have um, two, two gentlemen from Recovery Centers of America joining us to chat about their organization, chat about what they do, and... Uh, these two gentlemen, one by the name of Ross Bacon and the other Peter uh, Barb. But how do you pronounce your last name, Peter? <laughs> Barbudo. Barbudo. There it is. <laughs> My apologies there. That's all right. But uh, we're looking forward to chatting with you guys and kind of getting some more information about Recovery Centers of America. And uh, we'll just go ahead and jump right into it. How are you fellas doing? Awesome, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, it's exciting. Exciting to chat. And uh Get some information about this stuff. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, Recovery Centers of America. You know, what makes your organization different from others? Where you're located? Um, all of the above. Sure. Excellent. Uh, I'd love to do that. Um, you know, like I said, my name's Peter Barbuto. I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Recovery Centers of America. Uh, I've been with the organization just over four years, and uh, I've worked in addiction treatment uh, in many different roles, essentially, you know, for the better part of the last 14 years. Uh, I'm a person in long-term recovery. Uh, I, you know, I got sober September 9th of 2006. And, you know, kind of, I'd say ever since then, and ever since I come out of, you know, an extended care environment, I've, I've been working in the space, like I said. Uh, but, you know, being at RCA, one of the reasons I work at RCA is certainly because of its methodology, right? Like, uh, you know, the company was really founded off of, you know, uh, three main pillars. Um, and the three main pillars are, are very simple for, for most in healthcare. I mean, one is accessibility. Um, you know, we build uh, large centers of addiction medicine in and around major metropolitan areas, right? Like uh, for the purpose of this call, like major NFL cities, right? So, you know, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. Indianapolis, Chicago, you know, and, um, you know, our methodology is really localized, right? Like, so, you know, our catchment area and where we, we, we like to, you know, exist is really a 90 to 120 mile radius around our buildings, right? So oh, wow. accessibility is really important to us. Um, you know, 99.9% .9 of our patient population gets to our facility via ground transportation, transportation that we provide our patients because we know how important it is, you know, to have access to care. We answer the phone like really, really well. Uh, we answer it in 10 seconds or less. We answer it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And we admit patients and transport patients the same, right? Like all day, every day and have since I got here. Um, you know, we believe in, in a localized system because we want families to be involved. You know, it's been really hard, like through COVID, it's, it's opened up some different channels because we've been able to be a little bit more available through, you know, virtual platforms and platforms like this, right? But, uh, you know, we really believe in a localized model. So pillar two is, is affordability, right? Like our goal is to be, you know, in network with everyone because we know how important it is to access care. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, 65% of the United States population is insured through some sort of commercial entity, right? Like, and of that population, only about 75%, you know, about 75% of them have less than $1,000 in savings, right? Like, most people have a job, but don't have disposable income. 
So accessing right. care, you know, utilizing their benefit package is essential to them accessing care. So we believe in being in network with all of the payers in the area that we exist. And, you know, we believe in keeping costs extremely affordable for the patient and that patient's family, right? Affordability is really important to us. And in Pillar 3 is really quality, Monte, right? Like it's about you know, developing a clinical delivery system that is filled with evidence-based practice, right? Like meeting all patients where they're at and utilizing the resources that are available, um, you know, in, in, you know, designing delivery systems right now. So we, uh, we feel really good about, you know, our organization uh, as somebody who's, like I said, worked in this space for a better part of the last 14 years and, you know, have seen, a lot of different, you know, facilities and systems throughout the country. I work mm -hmm. at RCA because I believe in its methodology. I believe in the people that, you know, represent it. And, uh, you know, Brian O'Neill, who's our CEO and his vision. Uh, so, you know, we, our newest facility, obviously out there in the Midwest is, has been great, right? I mean, Ross is a guy who's out in Chicago working for us and how we get to know you guys. Right. And um, it's, it's really exciting for us to be uh, in RCA uh, in St. Charles, Illinois, you know, with our newest facility, RCA St. Charles, which is a beautiful site. And uh, certainly is going to have its fill of folks, you know, from Wisconsin, certainly all over Chicagoland as well. So, um, you know, we have 10 inpatient sites, 10 outpatient sites and four MAT sites. Right. And, uh, you know, again, like our facilities in and around major metropolitan areas, the ones that I, I did just mentioned, our newest facilities are, there in the Chicagoland area in St. Charles, down in Indianapolis, and then in Pittsburgh as well. So we feel really good about, you know, where we've expanded to outside of our, you know, our legacy area, which is in the Northeast Corridor. Um, and, you know, it's it's been a great ride for sure. That's, I mean, wow. I mean, you guys are really, really creating a footprint. Um, and I think that's wonderful because, you know, the more the merrier. Um, especially with all that you just shared. Uh, I love your the pillar um, route that you kind of took there with kind of explaining exactly what it is that you guys specialize in, what you do and what your you know your goals are. And so before we get in any uh, any further into Recovery Centers of America, you know, my question to, to you both is, um, you know, myself, along with um, Jessica, we both identify as, as someone um, in long term recovery. And so, you know, what got yourself, uh, you know, what got you involved in this work? You know, what was that push for you? Sure. Um, I guess I'll take that one first, Ross. Uh, like I said, I'm a person in long-term recovery since September 9th of 2006. Um, so I'm coming up on 15 years, right? Uh, there you go. It's Congrats. Funny. Today's my, my birthday, right? Uh, I'm 41 <laughs> years old today, but uh, I think, you know, just like many people in recovery, I feel like I was you know, kind of reborn that day, right? And so my new birthday is really September 9th and not uh, April 28th, which is when we're recording this podcast. Uh, so, um, and I'm in recovery from opiate use disorder, right? Um, I, you know, when I got sober, I was physically addicted to harmful narcotics. And um, it was, you know, I grew up in the Boston area, right? Uh, certainly appreciate your cup of coffee with my New England football patriots, right? But uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, in the area that I grew up in, it was, you know, unfortunately, opiates were something that had come on the scene, you know, back in the in the early to mid 90s. And it's one of the birthplaces for what is the opioid crisis. Right. And uh, I had a lot of, you know, I know kids I 
essentially graduated like eighth grade with, you know, it's probably seven or eight of them that are dead, right? Um, another four or five in prison and, you know, probably mm-hmm. another four or five that are, you know, in recovery like myself, right? I mean, it's a similar story that a lot of people see growing up with uh, substance use disorder. So, you know, I got sober, I compromised, you know, everything in my life, uh, work, family, um, and everything, my world blew up, right? And uh, it was you know, I had no choice, right? Um, it was go on to the bitter end uh, or accept, you know, the help that's available with the recovery community. And I feel very grateful that, uh, you know, growing up where I did in the city, you know, certainly a lot of nastiness, but just a lot of access to really influential people, certainly people that, you know, have a similar story and they're in recovery and, and came to my aid, right? Like my sponsor always, you know, taught me that most people are one good person away from being okay. And um, I found that person, right? And uh, I think just like taking direction, like certainly being beaten into a place where um, I was willing to take direction from people that knew better than me, right? That's what sponsorship is mm-hmm. all about. That's what the recovery community is all about is, you know, not only did I struggle around substances, but I think deeper than that, like I struggled making good decisions for myself. Uh, left to my own devices, every decision I made was bad. And so, you know, taking direction from people that knew better than me um, that, you know, you're going to go here and, you know, medical detox. Right. And you're going to go here and stabilize and then you're going to go here and you're going to live there for the next six months in an extended care community with other people. And um, you're going to stay there throughout and take direction. And, you know, thankfully, I was beaten in a state where I accepted, you know, those directions. Right. And uh Lo and behold, I got better. So, uh, wow, it was, that's yeah. I got sober at a uh, community-based organization in Boston called the Gavin Foundation at okay. Gavin House. Um, still exists today. I happen to be a member of uh, its board of directors, which I think is probably one of my most proud accomplishments. Um, I'm the only member of the board of directors that was a former patient. I'm only the, I'm the only member of the board of directors that was a former employee as well. Um, you know, it was about, you know, 12 months, a year sober. And, uh, I used to go to this big book meeting at the house every Sunday morning. Cause it, it was there. And, uh, there's a guy by the name of Red Collins and he's since passed. And he was an older guy, smoked a thousand cigarettes, bed horses, loved golf, just the, you know, the iron, right? Like the last of a dying right. read. And, and Red was the director of Cushing House, which was like the adolescent version of Gavin House. And he was like, you know, I want you to come down tonight and run a group for the kids. And I was like, ah, I don't really know if I'd be good at that. He's like, I don't think you would be either, but they don't know any better. Come down. You'll be fine. So um, I went down that night. It was a Sunday night and uh, I ran a group for these kids. And, you know, they weren't really kids. It's not true adolescent. It was 16 to 19 years old. Right. And at that time, okay. it was again in 2007. So it was you know, really the, unfortunately, all these 18, 19 year old IV heroin, you know, cases, these kids that unfortunately hadn't had the chance to take a legal drink and they were already, you know, using, you know, IV heroin, right. It was, it was awful. And, uh, we had 16 males in that house and it was six month program. And, and I was there, you know, for the better part of three years, you know, I took overnight shifts. I cooked dinner. I took them to meetings. I was the program manager. And, uh, I love that job and it taught me a lot about being available for people in early recovery, right? And uh, utilizing family support, you know, helping them get jobs, get on their feet, 
and we knew like a lot of those kids weren't necessarily going to continue, right? Like to stay sober. I mean, they had yet to have a meaningful, I mean, a, a legal drink, but they had this meaningful experience that they could draw from, right? Like, I know I can get sober because I did it before and I know it's fun and I know, you know, how much joy I had during those times. And, you know, like 15 years later or whatever, a lot of those kids are sober. Unfortunately, some of them are dead. And unfortunately, some of them are in prison for a long time, right? Because they made bad decisions and they're not bad people. They just made bad decisions because Mm -hmm. booze and drugs was calling the shots, you know, and uh, that's my story. And so I went to work all after that um, gentleman from the mayor of Boston's office contacted me and to go work in an outpatient environment in the old colony housing development, the projects in Southie. Right. And uh, so it was, you know, at the beginning phases of, you know, Suboxone, you know, buprenorphine, and there was, you know, pilot programs at the South Boston Community Health Center and there was 90 patients and Boston Medical Center as well. But in those times, you know, there had to be like some clinical support on top of a bu prescription, right? So um, right. I became that clinical support. I was running like early recovery groups and, you know, the outpatient center I went to, um, it was great. It was in the projects, like I said, and these people were great. They were, you know, MSWs from BC and, you know, all uh, BU, these places, and, and they were great. But unfortunately, like a lot of these people, they weren't responding to like one-on-one clinical services. So what I did was develop uh, a series of groups, you know, didactic in nature, where we were just, you know, getting down to the basics, right? Recovery 101, and just trying to engage them and come back. And it was great because we kept them engaged. And unfortunately, all of them weren't successful. So as a result, I became an expert in accessing services for people. Right. So it's kind of my birthplace into business development in the addiction treatment mm-hmm. space. So, you know, my job with the kids in direct care and my job in the outpatient environment as a case manager supporting the pilot, you know, phase of of, you know, was the buprenorphine rollout. Um, that's what I did. Right. Like I help people with warrants, um, with shelter, with their kids, Christmas presents. Right. Like seeing a psychiatrist, med management you know, and unfortunately I helped them access services on the inpatient side when there was some sort of lapse, right? So um, any reoccurrence, like I designed treatment plans for people, just like those individuals, my peers and that I grew up with had done for me, right? Like they taught me how to execute a treatment plan. And um, I believe in long-term care. I just do. And uh, I don't think people, you know, going to detox for five days a really good idea like you know like look you got to take your team off the field you know what i mean and and again you got to take the direction from people that know better than you and post-acute withdrawal especially for opiate use disorder is pretty severe right and uh right so you know that became my thing and and it's you know when i was at that job you know i was in the golf business years ago and uh, i had stopped playing golf when when i was you know, newly sober and keeping my world like really small. And uh, as a replacement activity for me in recovery, like I started playing golf like three years in and uh, my friends in recovery were my golf partners. And what happened was like, these guys were all like labor union, EAPs, Carpenters Union, Verizon, laborers, right? So they became my peers in this quest. And so like accessing services was something they did a lot and I did a lot and I was good at it. So you know, through my interaction and my friendships and recovery and what became, you know, my tribe, 
uh, I entered this world of business development on a national scale and uh, certainly representing large employers, large hospital systems, and really being a resource for them with a patient population that for all intents and purposes, like only some of us know how to deal with, right? So, um, you know, years later, here I am, uh, you know, working at RCA and I'm the VP of business development. We have 10 facilities and 1400 beds. And, um, you know, that's what we do. And that's what, you know, guys like Ross do is really develop relationships with, you know, influencers in the marketplace that have the ability to become, you know, referral sources and develop referral pipelines for us. Right. And, uh, so like, you know, that's my quest, you know, certainly in my professional life on this side in the recovery space, uh, and uh, certainly proud of where I am today and proud of the journey that I've had and very grateful for all, you know, for the people like Red Collins, who, like I said, is, is no longer with us and uh, be thinking of him this weekend as the run for the Rosas in Louisville, Kentucky on Saturday. Uh, certainly a big day uh, for him with his horse racing uh, as a horse racing aficionado. And uh, so, you know, I, I remember those people and keep them there and dear to my heart and uh, pray to them often and think of them often because they made such an incredible impact on my life and my development uh, as a person in long-term recovery that has a significant quest to be a man of virtue, right? Mm. Powerful, powerful, man. I Before we move on to uh, Mr. Bacon here, um, Peter, I got one question for you, man. So when, when do you... <laughs> My goodness, when do you take your cape off? <laughs> wow. When do you relax? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, you know, not often. Uh, I, you know, I got sober at 26. I turned 41 today. Uh, oh, happy birthday. Thank you. And right. I, um, right. I have a wife and two children, my wife, Jaina. My kids are um, Kaya, who just turned two, and Josie, who will be four in a couple months. Um so, you know, work and home, when do you take the cape off? Uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, like you don't, you know, our job is 24 seven. Um, mm. You know, my prayer every morning is, you know, to, to continue to become, or at least be reminded and strive to become the man that, you know, God wants me to be and that I'm called to be. And, and again, like often thinking of people that have come before us, my buddies in eighth grade that are dead, you know, my kids that I service that are in prison and, um, you know, like that gratitude and certainly right sizing keeps you moving because I'm not dead and I'm not in prison. And I certainly probably could have been 900 times over. And that's important to be reminded of on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, I think like when do you take the cape off? Um, you know, I certainly appreciate that, but I, I can't tell you the answer is, is all that great balance is hard. I don't really have a great handle on it. And, um, but thankfully I have distractions running around the house and, uh, keep you busy, certainly keep your right size for sure. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yep. you know, conversations like this certainly are a constant reminder. Um, but Absolutely. You know, balance is hard and, but I do, I feel indebted to, to continue to be available for people because, you know, again, like if it wasn't for that, um, you know, probably, not be the same for me i hear you well thank you for thank you for sharing all that information i think it's important obviously we could put a you know sort of put um you know who who is peter <laughs> here who is peter uh when we talk about you know the the uh, recovery centers of america and so i kind of want to ask the same question to you mr bacon 
Ross, um, you know, what is it that uh, I know we obviously had a conversation um, prior, but I want for you to share with our listeners exactly what kind of got you on the path that you're on right now as well. And, and yeah, what led yeah. you to do work with you know, Recovery Centers of America. I would uh, I would love to. Every time I hear Peter's story, it just uh, it's really encouraging and inspirational for sure. I think that was one of the kind of things that really brought me on board with RCA last summer. But rewind several years, I grew up in a, I would, my dad was a pastor. And so I would say the majority of my life was spent, you know, you go to church and you're a pastor's kid, you, this is the way you act. And so really that translated into most of my adolescent and adult life. Um, I think what Peter said, you know, in the inability to make wise choices, I, I, I didn't have the ability to do that either. And the the only choice I really knew well to make was, you know, when you're around people at church, you act this way, but you can kind of let your hair down elsewhere and find substances as a sort of an escape in a way to numb things and just a way to have fun. And so I would say, you know, I went to college to be a pastor. So I got a bachelor's degree in, in pastoral studies, but the majority of that time. And then I went to seminary and uh, my seminary actually was time was spent in Peter mentioned in Louisville, Kentucky. And so, um, you know, living there is really kind of where I entrenched myself in substance use disorder. I numbed myself, but used a lot of different substances to keep myself going and to get through grad school, ironically, to be a pastor. And so I went to, I finished that, got my master's, and I was a pastor for a couple of years, but I still had this whole other life that really nobody knew about. And in 2011, some of that came to the surface, but I'm sure you all know just as much as I, you know, when things first start to come to the surface, you only really want to show as many cards as you really have to, to make those people happy and then kind of move on with your life. And so that's really what I did. And I fell into a sales role and that sales position I had actually put me in a position where I traveled around the country by myself uh, to random big cities every single month. Uh, And as a person struggling with uh, a variety of substance use issues, going to those cities by by myself was really a recipe for failure. And so for four years, I, I lived that same life where I was in a city, I'd stay out pretty much every night till as late as I could, sometimes two in the morning, sometimes five in the morning, you never really knew. And then in it was actually September of 2015. I was in Southern California on a work trip and really my life kind of, I mean, blew up. Like I, I got robbed out there and I really had no way out and no other call to make outside of calling my boss who also went to my church in Chicago. It was a really, uh, horrible call to have to make just to tell him that I was stranded in Los Angeles and I needed a way to get home through that. Um, you know, I actually, I had to, my my work there told me they'd give me some time off. And so I went to a faith-based recovery organization. It was sort of a hybrid between like an inpatient facility and a sober living. It was more of like an immersion program, like 12-step faith-based immersion program called Redemption House outside of Minneapolis. And that changed my life. And um, I think, you know, something Peter mentioned, having that one person, I, really for me being in a house with 12 other guys where I could say all the things that I did and all the choices that I made and all the consequences I reaped as a result of that 
not feeling judged, but actually feeling really understood and, and with a group of people that could actually identify with the things that I'd been through was that was the first time in my life where I could sit in a place, say, these were all the things that I've done and not feel like a total failure and loser, but really feel cared for. And so that uh, that was a 90 day program, probably at about day 30. I was like, all right, I'm good. I can go back to my life and uh, move on with things and I'll be OK. And I remember sitting in my counselor's office there and he said, well, what did you agree to when you came here? I said, well, I mean, I agreed to 90 days, but I think I'm okay. I gotta, I gotta get back to work and make some money. And uh, he said, don't you wanna be a man of your word? And I just vividly remember that conversation. And I said, yeah, I, I really do. And I would say at that point, 30 days in at Redemption House is really where I kind of hunkered down, worked the program, and decided to stop trying to do things my own way, but listening to people that are much wiser than I am and really being a transparent person, trying to be a man of my word um, from that day on. So I came back from Redemption House and it's a long story, but I had a couple relapses and uh, I got engaged to my now wife and had to tell her about some of the things that I did. I remember she took the ring off her finger was about to walk out of the house and she turned around and said she'd stay with me. Her name's Caitlin and she's, I mean, she's amazing. And I, I just remember when she turned around, I, I, I never wanted to inflict that kind of pain on someone I cared for ever again in my life. And I just haven't turned back since. But I stayed in the same line of work doing sales for a company. And then COVID happened in April of last year, the company kind of shut down. And I stayed with them because they, you know, they gave me 90 days off paid uh, and they really took care of me and were really there for me. But I remember last summer, I, I interviewed for a bunch of different positions. I was going to like sell IT staffing and not, none of it was anything I really cared about, but it was a job. And then I interviewed with RCA and just hearing the three pillars and meeting with Peter and seeing our facility in St. Charles, I, I was on the fence and then we walked around the facility and I was like, wow, this is... I love this place. And this is something I can definitely get behind and a place I want to support and a place I want to send people to, to get help locally where their family can be involved. I think one of the things that I've just, I've loved about RCA is like, we have people call us when they need help. They never call an 800 number. They never have to wait on hold. They call my cell phone number. And so one of the things with that is, yeah, like my phone can ring at any moment in time, but just yesterday, I was talking with a lady and her life is in a really, really broken place. And so every time you have a conversation like that, it's a reminder that like we're really helping people that desperately need help and don't really know where to turn to find it. And mm -hmm. I love that about this job. It, we're called treatment advocates and it's yeah. in the business development arm. But I, I just love like, you know, if someone needs help, we find it for them. So, sometimes it's with RCA and sometimes it's not, but we never tell someone hey, call these five places, maybe they can help you. We find a bed for them, we get them into treatment, and we make sure that they make it there so that they can get into a place where they're safe getting help as soon as possible. So that's, that's I, I, I just, I didn't really know anything about this space, to be honest with you, before I took a position at RCA, but every day that goes by, the more thankful I am that I ended up getting this position with this company, and it's a mission that I want to really spend the, the rest of my professional life getting behind and being a part of. I hear you, man. And I don't blame you. It sounds like, sounds like it's a wonderful place. And I can't thank you enough, uh, the both of you for sharing, um, that personal information, you know, with, with myself, with Jessica as well, and our listeners, um, it's, 
it's um, just an awesome thing to, to, you know, get that information as to why someone got into the, the path that they're on. And, and when it, when it's in the recovery field, it's, it's such a beautiful process. And then being able to say that you help people is, is what it's all about. So that's some pretty cool stuff. And, and I, I do have a question for you guys. Um, you know, so we are still in the month of April and um, April is, you know, alcohol awareness month and alcohol is, you know, what I struggled with um, for the longest. And so, you know, my question is what does, you know, RCA, you know, offer to those struggling with alcoholism? Um, is there any sort of things that you guys may be doing differently this month to, to bring awareness about that or, 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 you know, I kind of just want to know, you know, what's, you know, what you guys do, are doing. Absolutely. It's, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that. I was just on the call with, uh, you know, one of our site CEOs in, uh, in our Philadelphia, you know, market and uh, going through some statistics and some statistics that we certainly bring to, you know, um, social workers and, and everyone in the market, right? Just, uh, you know, alcohol sales, unfortunately, are up like 45%, right? COVID's a time right now where, um, you know, people are struggling, unfortunately, Right, the comfort of their own home, right? It's the biggest concern we see. Uh, you know, we were just going through some stats again in Philly, and and Steve was telling me, you know, twenty two percent of his patient population is over the age of fifty, and their primary substance of choice is alcohol. Fifty percent of our patient population is reporting their primary substance of choice is alcohol, right? And I think, unfortunately, um, alcohol has been dumbed down a bit because, you know, through the opioid crisis, you know, folks are in, in their developmental years and their folks are saying, well, you know, I know he's sloppy drunk and providing all the, you know, or exhibiting all this bad behavior and risky behavior around alcohol in his young age, but at least he's not strung out on drugs like half of his senior class or whatever it may be, right? So we're seeing it. You know, 50% of our patient population's primary substance of choice is alcohol. And we have a significant amount of people in care throughout the United States of America. Um, so we're seeing it more and more, Monte. And I hate to say this, and, and I know overdose rates are significantly up, and I understand that. But as far as the opioid crisis that I was born into and developed from, um, you know, those 16 to 19 year old kids that were all IV heroin addicts at Cushing House when I started working, prevention efforts and early intervention efforts are somewhat working, right? Like we're not seeing an uptick in, you know, opioid use disorder amongst our like teenagers and developmental adolescents anymore. Unfortunately, those prevention efforts have worked, but unfortunately, they're using marijuana at ridiculous rates and the marijuana mm -hmm. that's being produced yeah. nowadays is 30 times what it was when I was 16. Right. And right. the psychosis that comes with it, um, you know, the amphetamine use. And unfortunately, again, like the risky behavior around alcohol use disorder. So we've had, you know, significant amounts of campaigns on our social media platform, um, you know, training materials on our, you know, which essentially is our, our school, right? The RCA Academy. RCA Academy is free to the general public. You know, those go out all the time. Those emails, if you're on our, uh, you know, our email cadence, if not, go to recoverycentersofamerica.com. Um, free CEUs and a lot of our material in the month of April, certainly geared towards, you know, what is uh, Alcohol Awareness Month, right? But 
you know, we've been talking a lot about it and have seen that shift, Monte. It's funny you bring mm-hmm. that up because, like I said, I was literally just on a call in regards to this. We have a patient coming to us today from a 55-plus community. Oh, wow. That's really not been like a primary touch point for us in business development. You know, so it was kind of eye-opening, right? Like mm-hmm. alcohol use disorder is still the number one concern in the United States of America. And it's still the number one most abused substance in the country. Right. So absolutely, you know, it's funny you bring that up and it's certainly, um, you know, very, very relevant for what we're seeing in today's day and age. Yeah. And that's, thank you for, thank you for answering that because that's why I brought it up because, um, you know, we obviously are seeing that, that spike in use of, of, of alcohol, you know, local merchants, have reported that their sales have gone through the roof last year. Um, It's all the data that we're seeing and receiving. And so I'm really glad that you answered that uh, because you're right. It is the number one most abused substance in America. And it seems like it's not getting enough attention. Um, Yeah. And, and you know, like Brian O'Neill, our CEO, says uh, says mm -hmm. all the time, I was on a call with a a CEO from a major payer in a region that we exist uh, not too long ago. And, he, I think, naively had talked about like post-COVID and, you know, what was our plan post-COVID, seeing right. that maybe because of COVID, we've seen an influx of patients needing assistance. And the alcohol industry invests $16 billion a year in advertising. That's not going away. And unfortunately, cartels and folks that, you know, work day in and day out to get illegal substances into our country they're not going to stop. And, you know, right. I think some of the, you know, people talk, don't talk about with the legalization of marijuana, drug trade has shifted. And yes, unfortunately, you know, like synthetically produced fentanyl is now, you know, what they produce and get into our country, which unfortunately is causing significant overdose. Right. And, uh, people don't know what's in the, you know, synthetic pharmaceuticals that they're ingesting on a daily basis. Um, And, you know, again, the alcohol industry and their investment into advertising is, if anything, it's going to increase. So there's no, I I guess, not a concern, but patients, unfortunately, are going to show themselves because there's a lot of people that exhibit risky behavior around substances. SAMHSA states is upward of 28% of the United States of America population between the ages of 18 and 65, right? So, so that's not going away <laughs> anytime soon. Yeah, you're, you, you are so right. And that's why this is such a, such a, just a great conversation because that is something that I speak about all the time. Um, we speak about it. Wisconsin voices for recoveries, you know, what is, What's the aftermath going to look like? What is this residual effects? You know, what are they going to be, you know, coming out of this, you know, pandemic cloud in a sense? And so I guess right into my next question, because it's perfect. uh, You know, we're talking about how people have been mentally struggling throughout this pandemic. And so my question to you and and, and to you as well, um, Ross, is, you know, what advice would you give to someone, you know, right now who, you know, may have been socially using drugs or alcohol, but, you know, due to increased depression or anxiety, you know, they may be experiencing an increase in the use of their drugs. What kind of advice would you give to them right now? I have, you know, uh, 
I think of my own personal um, walk, right, as somebody in long-term recovery, um, which what I would say is somewhat of a stressful job, um, you know, like challenge yourself to new things, right? Now's the time to embark on new things, um, you know, whether that's, you know, reading and committing to that on a daily basis. I know personally, um, I've, you know, thrust myself into my grass, my lawn. Uh, I spend an awful lot of time trying to to grow grass and make it look like Camp Randall Stadium, Monte. Um, and, you know, or building <laughs> and DIY projects around the house, right, which are certainly things that have, have kept me, you know, really inspired and moving forward in a positive direction. Um, but again, like I think going back to the most critical pieces of what have been my recovery journey. Number one on that list is certainly my relationship with my creator, right? Like uh, prayer is something that mm-hmm. has been very important to me in my life in recovery. Um, I've practiced it a significant amount because it was, you know, commanded upon me from my, you know, my peers, the people I look up to, my sponsor. It was, you know, one of the first car rides that we had going to, uh, uh, you know, an AA meeting was, you know, if you don't embark upon a life in prayer, you have no chance of, you know, continuing a meaningful, you know, life of meaningful recovery. And he was adamant in regards to that. So, you know, prayer life, but on top of that is like other people um, having influential, you know, for me, males in my life that I stay connected to um, that have become a regular part of my life that I discuss, you know, fear, inadequacies as a man, um, as, you know, an employee, um, you know, how, how to be a father appropriately, like all these things right. that people see that are vulnerable and that aren't discussed. Like I discuss them probably even too frequently, right? Like, so it's, it's, you know, that the, the pain is inevitable in life, but suffering is so, so optional right? Like you don't have to suffer because there are outlets and there are, you know, individuals available to be a resource and utilizing them, you know, that prevents suffering. So, um, you know, for me, again, it's just been activities, you know, uh, being out in the yard in the fresh air, you know, trying to figure out how to build shelving with two by fours, you know, which I've never done in the past, like these, you know, reading, right? Like um, reading every book available on things I love like the Patriots or Tiger Woods or, you know, whom my heart goes out to because, you know, I see what he goes through. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those things have become a part of my life in the last year. Um, And certainly just trying to, again, like become a well-rounded, you know, man. Uh, But it's, we've seen a lot of it, right? Like I've gotten a lot of one-off calls from people in my life who know what I do and, you know, my neighbor and, drinking wine on zoom calls with peers or whatever it may be right like things that we've never seen before in our past there are regular occurrences right like um, people that don't normally drink in home that are people that don't normally you know get on a zoom call with four of their friends and drink a bottle of wine or wine tastings on zoom or webex like it's a problem and how do i know that because i take these phone calls every day I see things I've never seen in the past. So, um, yeah, great question, but you know, I guess my own experience, right. That's really that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Ross, what you, what yeah, you thinking? I would, I would just really, I mean, really to tie up what Peter said in terms of yeah. trying new things. Like I, my life is so busy. We have a, a baby at home and I, I just, we've got a toddler. So like, we're so busy with that. But I think when I think about people stuck in the cycle of substance use disorder, it's like every morning, maybe it's going to be a different day today. And they try to do it on their own. And then at the end of the day, it's the same day over and over again, the same cycle. So I think trying to do new things and being vulnerable, like it might seem like nobody cares or it's an impossible thing to do, but taking that big move to be vulnerable with people that are around you, that would be probably the best new thing that that person could do today because they'll find countless people in their lives that actually care and people that can really help point them in the right direction to get the level of care and the help that they would need right away. I think the the alcohol issue is more and more like I sit in my back room and I see my neighbor. She's sitting there every single day, five o'clock with her coworkers, drinking a bottle of wine, doing her end of the day, happy hour Zoom call. And people can get alcohol delivered to their house just to click on their phone. And it's just so accessible everywhere that you go. You would think with restaurants and bars being shut down for a year, alcohol sales would be down, but they're still somehow up. And that's only because of retail sales. And so I just would say, like, if you're stuck in that same cycle, the new thing to do today is reach out, ask for help and be vulnerable. And you're going to find it if you do that. That's what that's that's yes. So that's that's what I talk about a lot. And same with Jessica as well is the people, um, you know, taking that first step is the hardest. It's the hardest towards, you know, your journey, uh, getting on the journey of recovery. But it's the most important, of course. Um, and I think by you taking that step, you empower yourself um, with the tools that you need in order to to um, have a successful journey. And so. Amen. It's I really, really appreciate you guys sharing that. I really, really do. Um, I think Jessica's going to ask our next question, but uh, you guys are answering these questions perfectly. And and then at the end, I'm, I'm going to get into this Patriots talk that I keep hearing, <laughs> uh, keep hearing about these Patriots. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to get into that with you. I can't wait. <laughs> I might hit the stop button before that happens. just kidding um well actually i have two questions but i think the first one i wanted to ask um kind of ties back into the beginning of this conversation and i i think it was you peter when you were talking about um your programs right and accessing care and how in order to access care if we're thinking about medical field like to access care we have to have benefits um And at Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, we hear like this is what we hear all the time. And I think during the pandemic, it's it's been worse where people are reaching out to us because um, their family members who are struggling don't have benefits. And so it's like this cycle that they continue to go in where we and we don't know how to best help them. And I will say that. that is one of the reasons like I was drawn to Ross, you know, we've had conversations when, um, you know, over the last several months, and I've, I think I've spoke to you three or four times, Ross, after being connected with you, because your program is so amazing. Um, like if, you know, listening to Ross talk about, well, if we can't find you something here, I will work 
until I can find a place for someone to go elsewhere in the United States. And that really stuck with me. And so I just wanted to, to thank you guys for doing that because there, you know, I've never met a treatment agency, um, yet that will do that. If, you know, if you come to someplace and well, we don't have benefits, you don't have the benefits that are right for our program, go someplace else. Um, they don't work with the person to try and figure out, well, where does, you know, where does the benefits go? Like, where can they go? So um, in doing so, like, right in doing that, I just wanted, like, first, I wanted to thank you guys for that, because tying into our next question, when when people try to access treatment and they can't because they don't either have the right benefits or they don't have benefits and they continue to get shut down time after time after time as a family member um you know not only am i on recovery but my brother has struggled with an addiction for 25 years and i've tried so hard to help get him to where he needs to be and i can tell you as a family member it is a daunting task and if i keep getting roadblocks i get so discouraged um and i can't imagine like right being that person actively using but wanting so badly to get better and to find help and getting told no 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 so now in the pandemic when we're isolating because of the pandemic um we have seen like these rates of suicide just skyrocket our mental health is not well people are you know reaching out for help and not sure how to do it um we were just wondering like do you do y'all see that correlation right between people who are actively using, not being able to access help, where can they find the help? Um, and then just like giving up, um, suicide rates increasing, or even like those feelings of hopelessness and despair, not knowing where to turn. And then what do y'all do? I mean, I know, I know what you do, but can you walk us through that process? Because I really, you know, I deep down, I think that this is what sets you guys apart from anywhere else in the nation. Um, and I want our listeners to understand that, that they can call you, um, because like, I like hands down, this is what set you guys apart and why I love you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jessica, for that. It, it's a good question. I mean, obviously I talked a little bit about like my professional development, um, you know, when I was in the housing development, right. Like, you know, I always talk about like private sector, public sector, especially in regards to like providers, right. And folks that that rely significantly on public dollars versus private dollars. And, and, you know, it is what it is, but I've been on both sides and understand how difficult accessing services can be, even in a state like Massachusetts, which probably has the most robust public system, you know, in the union, right? Um, So, you know, and you look at a state like Wisconsin, for example, which probably has the most competitive landscape from a health insurance marketplace in the country as well, right? It's not really dominated by any one specific payer. Uh, But you know, certainly for me and what I like to teach for people like Ross and everybody is to understand the entire treatment ecosystem in the, in the area you represent, because you need to be the expert in accessing services for everybody, like having that square peg, square hole mentality, because they deserve it. Our mission as an organization is to help 1 million individuals access a life of meaningful recovery. And in order to do that, we can't treat them all at RCA, right? It's not possible. But 
we have to utilize our partners in the community. And every state is very different on how you can enroll in the Medicaid system. Every state is very different on how Medicaid dollars, you know, essentially are dispersed and who the managed care organizations in that state are. And so we want to become those experts, right? And just to know that when an individual calls you and says, well, it's, you know, IV heroin, 24, male, some sort of public assistance, some sort of managed care organization. I don't know the Wisconsin landscape, but who in turn takes that individual regularly? And then who can we call to connect them to care immediately? Because otherwise they're not going to access it, right? Like, again, back to addiction being a problem of thought and the decisions, right? Not only are they bonded you know, to their substance, right? Like they're bound to their substance. They're also struggling with making the most, you know, effective decision for their progress. So like we need to be that change agent in their life. So connecting people to the services they need is part of what we do and what we believe in, right? So, um, you know, we try to take, and I think Ross is a great example of that, uh, even though he's an Illinois guy and to spend some time out there in Wisconsin with you. But, you know, like we try to treat every person that calls us as if it were our own brother or sister or mother or father. Right. And, and that's an important piece of, of what we do. And it's certainly how we gain credibility in the marketplace, just like we're talking here, right? Like you can't be a vendor for the organization you represent and expect to be successful. You have to be a partner for the agencies that you call in a partnership is just that, right? It's kinship. It's, let's help each other towards this common goal, right? And so, um, you know, I mean, knowing how to access care is something we try to be experts in in every area that we're in. So whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, if it's primary mental health, primary substance use, everybody has different specialties. And uh, whether it's somebody that needs acute services immediately and detox and stabilization, or they just need some sort of alternative living situation, right? With sober living or extended care, like, you know, and you guys certainly in the recovery coaching movement that I believe you support a significant amount. I mean, that's, you know, square peg, square hole, right? Like where are the needs of the patient and how do we meet those needs right now? You know, and uh, it's unfortunately, you know, I, I can't say I've met a ton of people that, you know, are on the front lines doing that similar type work. So I certainly commend you guys. But, you know, when people don't have insurance, who has free care beds? If they don't, how do we get them enrolled in emergency Medicaid or some sort of system the state has set up right now? Is it through the hospital or a local health center? Is there a finance office we can, you know, direct them to or connect them with? So they can roll in some sort of emergency Medicaid so we can get them access to service immediately. Like, what are the five things we have to do to get this person in care right now? And so we just make it a point to know what those five things are. Yeah, excellent. And I think, um, you know, our listeners who are tuning in are going to find this to be such a benefit because roadblocks, right? Roadblock, roadblock, roadblock is um, a lot of what we are hearing. I know, especially on our end as advocates. So um, to hear you talk about this is just extremely refreshing, um, especially as a loved one of someone who is struggling. Mm. Thank you again. Um, my other, unless Ross, do you have anything else you want to add to that? 
No, I, I don't have, I think that he hit the nail, Peter hit the nail on the head. It, it just, the only thing I would add is like it's st- being in this, I guess, workplace, it's not really a workplace. Like I just try to always keep at the forefront of my mind. Every person that I talk to is a person that's really struggling and needs help. And when that's always at the forefront of your mind, you're helping people. Like I'll make 10 calls to help anybody get help. And, uh, you know, once you lose sight of that is when you start to send out a call list or say, we're not a fit for you, call somebody else. So always at the forefront of our minds is, you know, we're advocating on behalf of people to make sure they, they always get the help that they need. Yeah. And especially us in St. Charles, right? Like we take Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna, Magellan, Humana, but like we don't take United right now. We're not, you know, in their network. We're not in, you know, um, any Medicaid network right now, but, you know, again, like we help everyone access care and, and depending upon, you know, how they present, um, you know, what unfortunately they're struggling with, like we know we can't be all things to everyone, but we need to know the resources in the areas that we're in in order to, you know, access care for the person that's calling us, right? We have a very recognizable telephone number. It's 1-800-RECOVERY. I know Ross will probably share his phone number and you'll have it available uh, as well as mine, you know, uh, at the end of, of, of this, right? But uh, we, you know, we're certainly very attentive to the people that access that try to access care with us and inquire of our services. both for furthering exploring that and with us and explaining it um you guys really are amazing um the only other question i think i had was um about mat mat medically assisted treatment um there's a stigma around that word or that naming that for treatment um and i think it's a hot topic here in wisconsin because um there's a lot of recovery homes that don't allow individuals um into them if they're on buprenorphine products, such as Suboxone, um, Subutex, um, if they are uh, like on the Vivitrol shot, um, if they're on methadone. I was just wondering if I could pick your brains about that. And we're trying right now, the sure. state of Wisconsin is going through, like through DHS, um, there is a legislative movement that has gone through to uh, make it mandatory that recovery homes that want federal funding here in Wisconsin um, have to allow MAT uh, to be able to get federal dollars. So that's a push in the right direction. However, it doesn't take place until April of 2022. Um, wow. And so, right, wow, that was my first thought as well, because how many lives could be lost between now and April of 2022? Um, and so we were just wondering, yeah, like wh- where are you guys at on that? What's your thought process on recovery homes that may be listening to this um, and reluctant to allow individuals on mat into their homes? Um, and just kind of where, like, I don't know, advice or what you think. Yeah, uh, it's great question. Um, it's funny, I guess, being from the Northeast Corridor and, and you know, it's not, I guess, a shot at the Midwest, but, you know, this is a conversation we had, I think, like seven years ago. <laughs> so we're on the other side of it. I And being out there, it's like, you know, kind of seeing that this is at the forefront, uh, you know, and being from an area like Boston, being around states like New York that are extremely progressive and certainly, you know, well-researched in regards to SUD with the likes of, you know, Penn and Jefferson and MGH and the folks around, you know, the healthcare institutions that have certainly 
researched a ton in regards to, you know, addiction treatment and addiction medicine. Um, and obviously, like state government, and federal government's significant support around uh, medication as a form of care, or at least, a, a you know, a part of a treatment plan. Um, and someone who struggled with opiate use disorder that right now in my life and in my recovery has been a proponent for abstinence, right? Like, um, I... I see the need for it and I see its effectiveness. Um, Suboxone, Vivitrol, Methadone, um, they are significantly helpful in assisting patients achieve a life of meaningful recovery um, just because that recovery includes a medication that you may or may not agree with because you were raised in recovery a different way. You know, like people need to, I think, open up their eyes a little bit, right? I understand the ambivalence behind, you know, like recovery homes because they want to figure out how to monitor it and things like that. And then, you know, but again, that term ambivalence, right? Like being on the fence, not knowing if they want to be sober or want to be using and where they fit. Um, medication is a way to, I guess, continue to promote and instill recovery principles in their life, um, especially with opiates, especially with, you know, fentanyl right now, which is much more, just like I said, marijuana is much more powerful than when I was using it 20 years ago. Um the opiates that are available right now because they're synthetically produced are the same. Our patients, our traditional detox protocols for opiates, we've had to adjust because the fentanyl that is available, right, like is just so powerful that the uncomfortability that withdrawing from it presents is really hard to manage, right? And I don't want patients to run out the door because they're just too sick. So we need to adjust the way we're treating them with medication. And, you know, mm -hmm. again, with ambivalence, um, it's one of the ways in which we can kind of stabilize a bit with, you know, I think it's hard to say long, long term MAT or if it's some sort of gradual progression to titrate them down over a long period of time to a low dose or abstinence based. Right. Um, I think that there's so much unknown. But, you know, for me in the state of Massachusetts, an incredibly progressive state that is very much invested on treating opiate use disorder with um, one of the medications that are available, uh, recovery homes, which are regulated through the state are all in the same boat. Um, I, I think it's, you know, like it's evidence-based. So at RCA, we are huge supporters of medication as a form of care and as a portion of people's care. Our medical directors are all in the same boat and, you know, like every patient's different their reasons for, you know, wanting to be in recovery are different and where they are in regards to their motivation is different. And so it's a tool for us to use to keep them alive, right? And to keep, I guess, working towards motivating them for, you know, like a more meaningful recovery process in their life. So I, um, you know, I get if I own a recovery house or what that system looks like in Wisconsin, how I might think it's hard for me to manage, right? There are tools in place and processes that exist that, you know, hold people accountable. You know, I, I just don't want some, you know, 36-year-old 
women or male to have their whole prescription of harmful narcotics in their possession. There are ways for us to manage that and hold them accountable. You know, unfortunately, there are ways to abuse those substances. And, that, you know, I mean, but that is what it is, right? People abuse benzodiazepines. People abuse methamphetamines. People abuse alcohol. Um, so, you know, I mean, we we have to adjust the way we're treating patients specifically around opiate use disorder because, unfortunately, is a very lethal substance. And our overdose rates are skyrocketing. So we need to continue opening up our minds and utilizing that as a resource to continue to promote long-term meaningful recovery through that process, right? So, um, yeah, it's a little shocking for me being out in the Midwest now to see, you know, some of the hesitancy to adopt the philosophy of utilizing medication as a, uh, as a significant form of a treatment plan. Um, you know, I know for us at St. Charles, Dr. Holtzford, Dr. Zisman, our CEO, Karen Wolnick Albert, we're very much supportive of utilizing medication as a form of care um, for our patients moving forward. And yeah, it's been a little bit hard to continue their care with recovery homes because some folks, unfortunately, just they don't accept it. And, um, you know, I think they need to get on board uh, and probably sooner than april of 2022 or whatever that looks like mm -hmm. right <laughs> absolutely uh, absolutely jesse you have uh, another question no i'm i know i'm done thank you so much and thanks for that explanation peter great yeah yeah that that's this was wow this was jam-packed with a lot of information fellas and um as promised as promised I want to talk about this Patriots real quick. We have to. It's 24 hours from draft day. <laughs> it's a big day for us. <laughs> it is a big day. It is a big day uh, for, for obviously, yeah, the NFL draft is coming up. And obviously, you, you kept throwing out the, the good old Patriots. Um, and so you're a fan of the New England Patriots, which is the number one team that every other team hates. But <laughs> you are a fan. <laughs> I'm good with it. Yeah, I got a quick story. When I went to the Patriots uh, for about two months, I uh, had the opportunity, obviously, in our team meetings to sit next to James White, um, who, you know, I have a good relationship with him. We were roommates in college here. And uh, so when we sat right behind Tom Brady and we would always talk, me, him and Tom would always talk about the, uh, you know, Big Ten football because he's a Michigan guy. We're, we're Badgers. Uh, but funny story, uh, at this time, the lottery was up to about $1.4 billion. I think it was the first time ever. And this guy, Tom Brady, had about 25 tickets. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and he shared it with us. He actually busted them out in the team meeting, his 25 tickets. And I'm, James and I both were like, wait, what? What do you need a billion dollars for? I mean, your wife is worth $500 million. You're worth about $250 million. And he said he just wants the money, and if he wins, he's gonna kick in uh, Belichick's office door and <laughs> and tell him that he quits. And I just thought that was a funny, funny story hearing that from Brady. Um, very funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, it was bittersweet. Well, you know, I certainly was not one that was uh, right. rooting on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just because. <laughs> and I'd like, you know, obviously his stature in new england right right 
and you know, Coach Belichick too, right? I mean, uh, as somebody mm-hmm. who is um, in leadership, I'm certainly in awe at the way you know him and and you know Mr. Kraft and those folks, right? And, and they run their organization, and, and certainly Tom playing a big part of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah, big fan, man. Like, absolutely, Coach, and you know, James White, we love. <laughs> Go Badgers, yep. you know, mm-hmm. um, we've had many of them in our time here. I mean, I, it's funny, RCA is a Philadelphia-based organization, Monte. So oh, I'm goodness. down there a lot. And obviously <laughs> they're very invested in their Eagles. And the first year mm-hmm. I was here, we happened to play them in the Super Bowl. So it was, uh, needless to say, it was tough times for me. Absolutely. I hear you. Yeah. 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 And so <laughs> when you yeah. were in New England and, and the NFL, and sorry to ask you questions, but obviously, you know, it's documented that you struggled with, you know, alcohol yeah. during those times. Like, mm-hmm. how is the NFL as an employer in, you know, supporting you and, and identifying that as an issue? Or does, was that not a thing? No, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't. Um, um, and, and, uh, I, I, I'm glad to see that they are now starting to implement, um, psychiatric care, um, for the, I was gonna say student athletes <laughs> for the athletes. Um, meaning they actually now teams are hiring a psychologist, um, for their team, um, and, and making sure that they're implementing this mental health care, this mental health sort of wraparound. And, and I'm like about time because I feel like, um, coaches and these these football clubs they don't at the time they really didn't understand that you can experience trauma in sports you really can um especially when you're running full speed with your head down or what have you into another person <laughs> creating some some damage uh, you can experience some trauma and some psychological changes in your brain can happen so i mean i'm glad to see that this is happening but yeah i struggle with alcoholism during that time pretty pretty bad and um, it got the best of me, of course, and, and essentially, you know, took my NFL career uh, from me. But I'm in a better place now. Yeah, so I really, really I would I really say, appreciate you asking that. I would say that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I remember when you came here and we were all jazzed up, right? I mean, certainly Washington, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, and uh, so right. you know, and then at Denver. So it was uh, in the running back room here has always been ever revolving, but, uh, you know, absolutely. It's, it's cool. I mean, this is great. And certainly being on here with you and seeing your story is inspiring. And I think there's so many more, you know, people like yourself that have, you know, significant background, especially in athletics that have been very forthcoming about their story to inspire others. And I love seeing more and more, you know, doing what I do, uh, and the experience that I've have, you know, when you see, athletes that you know is taking an indefinite leave of absence right you're like right you my mind goes where my mind goes because i know exactly you know and not or even you know like the tiger woods situation right like mm-hmm. and i'm a my goodness do i love that man um but it's hard like to sit back and know that look i know oh, what i know yeah and uh yeah he's struggling yeah and it's, He's struggling. it's hard to see, you know, and um, it's, you know, I think it's good that they're all being proactive and trying to provide support for, you know, not only their current members um, of their play associations, but retired members as well. Right. And uh, it's it's cool to see for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it is the 
hour and seven minute mark. I do not want to keep you fellas any longer. Um, but this was a wonderful conversation. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for being so open and also being so flexible with our schedules to, to provide this awesome conversation. Um, and my last question is where can people find you guys? Where can they get a hold of you? Yeah. They, I mean, they can call either of us anytime. Uh, I mean, I give my phone number out to any person. It's a, it's, I won't even talk sports cause I'm from Chicago. So you can <laughs> assume what football team I like, which is a sad existence these days, but my cell phone number is it's seven, seven, three, four, nine, zero, six, four, eight, eight. And, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram too. So there's not a ton of Ross Bacons in the world. So it's, I'm pretty easy to find from that standpoint. So anyway, someone reaches out to me, I'm happy to talk with them anytime. Yeah. And again, our our phone number is pretty recognizable. It's 1-800-RECOVERY at RCA. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, fellas, again, thank you very much. Uh, that is how you guys can reach them. Um, we really, really appreciate you guys sharing your stories, sharing information about RCA on Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. Um, again, I am your host, Monte Ball, with co-host Jessica Geski, and we are going to wrap this bad boy up and let you guys get on with your days. So again, thank you very much, and you guys take care, okay? Thank you. Thanks, you too. It was awesome to be on here. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in.